listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. As promised listeners, we're back with the third in our four-part series of episodes that are more educational. And because I can only go so long without bringing you a personal story, this episode, it's pretty half and half. Satkar Khalsa is a longtime colleague of mine at Dougie Center. As a staff member, she is our Family Services Coordinator, which means she's a wizard at navigating schedules and getting families placed in our peer grief support groups. And like most folks in this field, Satkar comes to the work with her own story. The youngest in her family, Satkar was just three when her older brother died in a drowning accident. So she really grew up with grief as part of her family. Although, in her family, that grief was never talked about. Neither was her brother. Like, ever. Now, as someone who leads groups for kids who were the same age that she was when her brother died, Satkar is relieved and gratified to know that those kids, and their adults, get to have a different experience. They get the opportunity to talk about their people who died, to express their emotions, and to be with others who can relate to them in their grief. Satkar loves working with the youngest kids in our program, the three to five-year-olds that we call littles. In our conversation, Satkar and I discuss what she remembers about grief as a young child, how that grief shaped her decisions as a parent to her own child, and what she's learned about what grief looks like for preschoolers, how to talk to them about grief and loss, and what they most need from the adults in their lives. Okay, here's our conversation. Sakar, thanks for coming on Grief Out Loud. It's your first time recording a conversation for the podcast, right? That's correct. So we usually start with the personal story on the show, uh, but I want to do it a little out of order today and wondering if you can talk a bit about your role at the Dougie Center. I am the Family Services Coordinator, which means that I place families in groups. I run orientations. If families need to change groups for whatever reason, I help them figure that out. Um, and I also run six groups. I do an online group for littles who are three to five. I run a four to eight-year-old group. I run a six to 12-year-old group. I run a middle school group. And then I have two teen groups, one which is general and the other is specific for sibling death. And listeners, Satkar and I have worked together for many years, and I am extremely grateful for Satkar at Dougie Center because she loves to work with the kids who are three to five and four to eight, which is the age range that I'm the most terrified of. So (laughs) that is why uh, we decided to have this conversation because we really wanted to bring you information about what does grief look like, sound like, how does it show up for these kids who are, you know, kind of the youngest grievers, as we say, uh, and what are some things we can be doing to 
best support them. So thank you, Sotkar, because if you weren't here, I'd have to work with those kids. (laughs) I'm always grateful that you work with the young adults. So it's a trade off. Yeah, we do more talking and crying. You do more singing and playing for sure. (laughs) Right. Right. Okay, so now that we get the business part out of the way, uh, what's your personal connection to this work? Well, it might not be very surprising that my interest in those little kids is connected to my own experience, perhaps. That's why I enjoy them so much. I am the youngest of six kids, and my middle brother, who was nine years older than me, died when he was 11. He was, I think, four days shy of turning 12, Um, and I was three. That had a huge impact on my family. So he died on 4th of July. He drowned in a public pool with lifeguards and lots of people around. My parents and I were not at the pool. In 1970, I think it was totally normal just to like send your kids off to the the local high school to go swimming um, without you. But my other siblings were all there. Uh, You know, in 1970, there was nothing like Dougie Center. And I think people didn't really know how to, maybe even how to support grieving, uh, you know, parents, let alone grieving kids. And so my, my experience as a young child in my family was that we just stopped talking about my brother I know I was not allowed to go to the funeral. I don't know. My oldest siblings are 10 and 12 years older than me. So they were teenagers or almost teenagers by that point. I don't know if, I think they were probably allowed to go, but honestly, I don't know because we don't talk about it. So I really, I'm not sure which kids got to go and which ones didn't, but I know my mom felt really strongly about not exposing children to that kind of thing, which is interesting because it's not, I I don't know, she's Catholic. I'm sure she went to a lot of funerals. I don't know. I don't know what her thinking was behind that. Um, Although I I think it's not unusual, probably. I still hear from people today wondering if they should allow their young kids to go to funerals. So, yeah, I mean, all, all the photos of my brother went away. At some point, my parents had a photo or a, a portrait, maybe, that my sister drew in their bedroom of my brother, but I don't think that was even right away. I think I was older when that got put up. So no discussion. Until my mom died when I was in my 30s, I had never been to my brother's grave. I didn't. I don't think I even knew where it was. So, you know, that's how buried (laughs) it all was. It wasn't a spoken rule. It was an unspoken rule that you don't bring up Tamar. You don't talk about him. And another, I think, unspoken rule among all of us kids was to do our best to not 
create any problems or friction for our parents because, you know, they were, it was hard enough. Like we should not get into trouble. We should not do anything wrong. You know, my parents were also very strict Catholics. So that might've played into it. That that could have been, <laughs> could have been a guiding principle regardless, but I definitely felt this pressure that they had had, you know, it had been hard enough for them. So causing extra trouble would be not okay. You know, as I'm listening to you talk about kind of the the way that your brother's death impacted the system and those unspoken rules that got created and thinking about you being so young, only three when it happened, and then your brother literally disappeared, like from the earth and then from the walls and from the conversation. And it was like, do you have a sense of like, what your own experience was as a young kid, maybe like three, four, five, six, with your own grief? Or was your grief just so tied to how the people around you were showing you Mm -hmm. what it meant? I don't, I'm not really sure. To be honest with you, Jana, I, I think about this a lot (laughs) about, you know, my own grief about, is it, okay for me to really own my my grief around him um sometimes i feel like maybe my grief is at least in part grief of not having sort of a typical happy childhood like parents who were very present and engaged Um, and I think at least for my oldest siblings, they probably, you know, I'm assuming they got that until my brother died. So, you know, if you're 13, 15 years old, you, you definitely will have strong memories of our family prior to Tamar's death. I, I have no recollection of what that was like. I only know my parents as they were, so it's and my family as as it was after the death. And so, you know, it's hard for me to know how different things might have been. I have some conjecture <laughs> about that, but that is where I get a little anxious about, ooh, if I express my opinion about that, would my siblings disagree? But I I, I don't know. I and I have when I was younger like a young adult, I do remember trying to ask how my parents were before the death and not really getting much traction. The other thing I realized that, that probably reinforced the whole don't make any trouble for people. In kindergarten, I remember we had art, like an art station in the classroom And when you were finished with the art station, if you walked away, they would clean up your stuff and, you know, let your painting dry or whatever. And I was working on this painting, working so hard, and I really had to pee. But I was afraid if I left to go to the bathroom that they would think I was done. So I just kept trying to hold it, trying to hold it, trying to hold it until I finally wet my pants. And at the time, my mom had thrown her back out and she 
had to be in bed for like six weeks. And so the neighbor had to come pick me up to take me home to, you know, get me changed. And I remember her driving me home and unintentionally probably, but shaming me for having this accident when, you know, my poor mom is in bed and I'm making this extra problem. I was five. It's kind of astounding to me, but that definitely reinforces like, don't make any problem for your parents. Even like just a normal thing that happens to a lot of kids. So one of the things I want to talk about is like, when you're working with kids who are the age that you were when your brother died, like what you see about your experience reflected in them or what they're teaching you about access to grief that maybe you didn't have. So I do want to talk about that. But first, I want to ask, you are a parent and you had a child who turned the age you were when your brother died. And I wonder what you noticed about your own parenting that was influenced or shaped by your experience of being such a young child when a brother died. Um, my parenting was absolutely influenced by my grief and how my family managed their grief. Um, first of all, my mom had already died when my daughter was born. And I had photos of my mom around our apartment. And from the time Pridham was an infant, we would walk around the apartment, you know, with her and that she's like pre-verbal at this point. Right. But I would show her the different pictures and I would show her a picture of my mom and say, oh, that's Grandma Mary Jane. She died. She went back to God. That was just my little brief explanation for her. So always from day one, I'm talking with my child about death. Now, I'm not explaining what dead means or, you know, anything like that. She's so tiny. But just incorporating my mother into our lives right from the get-go. I also, you know, if there were opportunities to go to funerals or things like that with her, which didn't really happen until she was older, uh, older meaning like maybe seven, I would ask her, you know, do you want to go? and bring her with me. So I think that only really happened once, but it didn't even um, cross my mind to leave her home unless she didn't want to go. But so there's that. The other thing, and this is not so much like how I talk about grief, but I remember when she was about three days old, like having a panic and not really knowing what that was about and calling my midwife and saying, I, you know, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. Now, partly, I think after day, the third day, all your hormones kind of shift. So you really are uh, experiencing a hormonal event. But also, you know, my midwife just was, she was so intuitive and she just sat and chatted with me. And at some point, as she was just talking and trying to be soothing to me, she said, you know, this, this baby, this soul, you know, has come into your life, but you don't really have any control 
over what her destiny is in large part when she comes, when she goes. And as soon as she said, when she goes, I burst into tears and I was like, oh my God, she could die at any time. <laughs> and it was like, oh, what did I do to myself? <laughs> like, um, and I can remember feeling very jealous of, or maybe envious, I don't know, of um, other moms that I knew who had not had the experience of grief as a child because I could not pretend that she wouldn't die before me. There, I, I had no way to draw that curtain closed. And, you know, we all know that people die and that children can die, but I, I just couldn't even pretend. <laughs> so that was, um, that was kind of a huge revelation, which sounds silly, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> but I just, I wasn't, I thought I had like worked through a lot of stuff. And so it, it was sort of surprising to me to have that hit me so much in the face and realize, oh, that's what my panic was about. I, I think about that a lot in the, in terms of, you know, the kids that we work with, the families that we work with, all of us who work at Dougie Center, we lose the privilege of saying, well, that's probably not going to happen. Like, that's kind of an irrational thought. Because we're like, no, it's not. It absolutely could happen. It happens all the time. You know, just this last mm -hmm. weekend, I was out at the coast with some friends. And there was um, here on the west coast of Oregon, we have something called a sneaker wave, where these really high unexpected waves come in, and they can pull you out to sea. And so I was a little on edge. And I was talking with a friend who was like, well, you know, I know a few people who've been caught in sneaker waves, and they were fine. And I said, Oh, I only know the stories of the people who die in the sneaker wave, because those are the people who come to Ducky Center. I've actually literally never heard a story of someone caught in a sneaker wave who didn't die. So I forget that I have such a skewed sample <laughs> of like, uh, <laughs> of judging safety of things. But that can be so true for anyone who had an experience with someone dying. It's like, no, that can happen. Right? Yeah, I, I do have to do a lot of um, self talk. When my child was little, if she was, say, going on a field trip and for some reason I couldn't go, which incidentally, I tried to go to every single one possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, or if she was, you know, going somewhere in a car with somebody that wasn't me, you know, I really had to sort of do a lot of talk to myself that for the most part, people are safe. She will more than likely be just fine. And and even to this day, and you know, she goes to school very far away now in college. And I still have to sometimes do that, especially, I don't know why, but especially if she's traveling from, you know, point A to point B. If she's just, you know, on campus or maybe out somewhere with friends kind of in the general area of where she lives, I, you know, I can kind of let all of that go. But if she's, you know, going some distance away or getting on a plane or something like that, I really have to uh, talk to myself about it. And that really, most mostly it's okay. So let's go back to that original question of now that you're in this role of working with kids who are the age you were when your brother died, what have you learned from them 
either about what you did get to do or feel in your grief or what you didn't get to do or feel in your grief? Well, it makes me really happy when I see kids feel comfortable and confident to share their story, whatever that might look like for them, right? It's not always, strictly speaking, the truth as maybe their adult would see it. Sometimes there's fanciful things sprinkled in or, you know, whatever. Or maybe they're hearing a lot of other kids talk about a certain type of death and that's not how their person died. So all of a sudden they're borrowing someone's story. Um, But just the fact that they feel okay to talk about it makes me just happy, you know, to know that it can be different and that it can be different for their adults as well, that those adults can get support so that hopefully they can allow space in their home and their community for their child to freely share if they want to. Speaking of adults, what what do you think is important for adults, whether it's a parent, a caregiver, a teacher, whoever, to understand about what grief looks like and can sound like and can show up like for these youngest kids? Um, well, I like to let those caregivers know, first of all, this is a long game right this is i think all all parents and caregivers they they just want their kid to be okay they want to know they're going to be okay that this tragedy or event this death is not going to ruin their child's life forever so reminding them that there isn't a quick fix that it's a process and that that's really okay it's totally normal because a lot of times they want an answer for how to fix it right away, which I completely understand. Letting them know that kids that young are don't understand the permanence of it. And so they you might tell them, well, when someone dies, they can't come back. And so you think, okay, I've talked to them about this. And then a few days later, they're saying, well, can grandma come to my birthday party? Oh, no, sweetie. Remember, they died and they can't come back. Okay. You know, and then a few days go by. Well, are they going to be at our house for dinner? No, sweetie. Remember, they died and they can't come back. There's There can be quite a bit of that. And it can take people uh, off guard, wondering like, are you know, is that kid listening to me? Did they under, you know, what's going on? Why do they keep asking? And it's just, they're just trying to make sense of it. Uh, and I think in all the different contexts and really they just don't understand that, that permanence. I, I mean, sometimes as an adult, it's hard to understand, right? Like everything looks the same, but it's, it doesn't feel the same. Where, you know, how is it that my person could just be gone? Um, So, you know, if you're three 
or four or five, plus you still have such um, amazing like fantasy life as a child that young, it's, it can be easy to just have these ideas. You spend time sitting with kids who are this age, who are grieving, kids who are a smidge older, that four to eight year old. And then you've got the older kids, the middle school and high school kids. What would you say are some of the biggest differences in terms of how they express their grief or express anything really, I guess, in the in that group setting with one another between the, the younger kids and then the older kids? Well, little preschool age kids are pretty direct. They're not necessarily trying to make it nice for anybody. And they don't always really understand uh, social norms. Unless they've been shut down a few times, they'll tell anybody. You're in the grocery store at the checkout line and suddenly they're telling the checkout person that daddy died. And as the adult, you're thinking, oh God, you know, <laughs> does this person really want to hear this story right now? Um, so they're very open. And they also, I think, in a way, don't always understand like the gruesomeness of death. So they may share details that an older child would either not want to share or not understand that people wouldn't necessarily want to hear those graphic details. Also, that age group play is really, really important the less sophisticated a person's verbal skills are even even young kids who are very verbal and have you know pretty good vocabulary it's a pretty sophisticated thing to connect your emotion and your experience and your words so having the opportunity to play is how those little little ones are making sense of their experiences, even just like on a subconscious level. And feelings, you know, they we can, we call them feelings, because you can feel them in your body, you experience them in your body. And the littler you are, the less, you know, again, you're not able to verbalize them as much, you just know you have this like, energy in your body, and you need to get it out. So the volcano room, uh, even just, I don't know, in my littles group at Dougie Center, the program space is circular. There's a circular hallway. Um, there are a couple of talking rooms off the circular hallway. My littles toward the end of group, they would still have energy to burn. So sometimes we would have them run a few laps around the circle, which they loved doing. So yeah, lots and lots of energy, lots of noise. Um, also love making noise in the music room. Um, also a lot of kids wanting to play dress up. Um, I would have kids who would go in and dress up and then play in other spaces. Uh, I had a little guy who used to love being Spider-Man. And as soon as it was time to go play, he would run into the theater room, put on the Spider-Man costume, and then go, you know, run off and play like in the volcano room or play air hockey. But Spider-Man made many appearances. They're pretty unselfconscious. 
And I think you would know <laughs> with those teens and middlers, they're very self-conscious um, and, and trying to think about how they say things and sort of censoring themselves. And those, the little ones just don't do that generally. Yeah, I would. And in the group, I do have one group listeners that's for kids, six to 12 year olds. You know, kids sometimes will come in at five and a half, six. And I noticed a trend over over time that when they came in five and a half, six, six and a half, maybe almost up to seven, they would just tell their story. You know, my daddy mm -hmm. died. He took too much heroin. My mommy died. She got hit by a car. And then they would hit a certain age, like second into third grade. And suddenly they would stop sharing as many details and they might even start to uh, choose not to share their story using our iPass guideline. And I was always wondering, I mean, this is just my hypothesis. I don't have any research to back this up, but I was like, when they first came into the group, they were just concerned with telling us about them. And then as they got older, they got concerned about how they're telling us about them would impact how we saw them. And mm. I was like, oh, and yeah. And then my own teenage self got real uncomfortable <laughs> thinking about, <laughs> you know, how much we do shape shift uh, in, in reaction to what we think other people are going to think or feel about us based on what we've just said. Yeah. And also making other people uncomfortable, like realizing that your story might make somebody else uncomfortable. I had a kiddo in that in-person littles group whose parent, whose mom was murdered by dad and the child witnessed the murder and they would talk very openly. And initially they were quiet. They would pass all the time, pretty probably traumatized, <laughs> shell-shocked. But then over time, they started sharing more of the story and, and would say, my daddy shot my mommy, would tell us how, where they thought dad had shot mom, where their adult caregiver thought dad had shot mom. And, you know, they had this disagreement about that, but the kiddo would always tell their truth. Um, and another child in the group would then ask questions. So they had this whole conversation. So the other child would say, but he didn't do it on purpose. And the other one would say, yeah, he did. And then the friend would say, but why? And the child would say, I don't know, because he's mean. And, you know, this conversation would just go back and forth. I think in an older group that wouldn't happen. I don't think... I don't think another child would ask that question. And I loved that our model provided a space for the one child to be able to share their truth and for the friend to be able to ask the question without people shutting the question down because it wasn't coming from a place of judgment. It was like pure curiosity and the child who was sharing the story was so comfortable with the story, having, uh, you know, been supported by us and been supported by a therapist and their adult caregiver that, you know, they just were fine. Like, no, this is, he was just mean. Yes, he did it on purpose. 
and now he's in jail and mommy's in heaven. And that was always amazing to me that, that, you know, just such a beautiful example of this is why we have groups for little ones. Because sometimes people are like, well, you know, why, why are they even going to remember? <laughs> Can they even understand? Are they going to understand, you know, well, maybe they don't understand the way we understand, but they understand somebody's gone. And they understand that that feels bad. And over time, they will begin to understand. And now they've had practice sharing their story and they know it's okay to talk about it. And that just makes it, I think, a little bit easier and more comfortable as they get older and do understand. I know we say this pretty much every episode of Grief Out Loud. Grief is different for everyone. There's no one right way to support someone who's grieving. And there are some like commonalities or suggestions that might be helpful. So I'm curious in, in the work that you've been doing for so many years, what are some of your top recommendations that you might have for parents, caregivers, family, friends, uh, when it comes to supporting kids, you know, in this younger age range when somebody dies? One of the things, you know, I think uh, adults want to make kids feel better, right? So if the, if your child is crying and upset, or angry, you know, having a temper tantrum or something like that in expressing their grief. Sometimes the the knee-jerk reaction is just to, to say, oh, it's okay, sweetie, you know, mommy wouldn't want you to be mad or mommy wouldn't want you to be sad. And those things might be true, right? Maybe mommy wouldn't want you to have those big feelings. But I think what is more helpful is to acknowledge the feelings so if you're not sure what it's about, you can ask, gosh, you seem really sad. What are you feeling sad about? And if the child isn't quite sure, you know, you can offer, are you feeling sad about mommy? And they'll, they'll tell you <laughs> um, what it is. And then you can say, oh, I, I understand why you feel sad. How, how can I help? Do you want a hug? Do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to play with dolls? And it might be okay to say, like, I don't I don't know that mommy would want you to feel sad, but it is okay to feel sad, right? So just acknowledging for the child how they're feeling is huge instead of trying to sweep it under the rug or just make it better. It can help let those feelings be able to resolve themselves a little bit more quickly if there's acknowledgement and comfort. Like, it's so comforting, even as an adult, when you're feeling angry, upset, if someone just says, God, I really understand why you feel that way. It's like, <laughs> phew. <laughs> and it's the same with kids. They're not any different than us in that way. Also, that they might not be able to talk about their grief, but they might have more tantrums. They might get more clingy. They might want to sleep in bed with you. They might start having toileting problems that they didn't, that like they had already, they're already potty trained and suddenly they're wetting their pants or um, wetting the bed at night. All of those things are part of grief, just those kind of regressive behaviors. And to have some patience with that, that over time, those things 
should resolve themselves um, if you're able to support your child in their grief. Also that self-care for the adult is really important. Attending to your own grief so that you can be a support for your child. Uh, if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not attending your own grief over time, it's going to be harder for you to help your kiddo. And we do know that parents who are caregivers who are attending to their own grief, that has better outcomes for kids in, in their grief process as well. So I'm really appreciating what you said about how important it is to acknowledge kids' feelings, make space for them to have their feelings, offer comfort, and have patience with sort of the behavioral changes that you might see. One thing I'm wondering about is, do you have any suggestions for parents and caregivers for how to respond to kids' questions? I feel like kids that age have a lot of questions, some of which the adults in their lives might be like, I don't want to, or I have no idea how to answer these. Uh, honesty is always honest and age appropriate. And, you know, give them a little bit and then see what questions follow that initial question and answer. So if they want to know how their person died, let's say the person died in a car accident. So you tell them, daddy got in a car accident. The doctors tried to fix it, but they couldn't fix his body and he died. Now, if your child doesn't know what died is, and incidentally, you do want to use that word because euphemisms are pretty lost on little ones who are very concrete thinkers. So if you say, we lost your grandmother, they are going to want to go find grandma because they were able to find their teddy bear last week. So why shouldn't we be able to find grandma? So you want to explain that died means their body stops working. And that means they can't breathe or pee or poop. They can't feel anything. So they're not feeling hurt. They can't sleep or wake up. Their body just stops working. And then, you know, after you give that explanation about uh, the doctor can make their body work again, you can just wait to see if they have other questions and just give them the information they're asking for. Short and simple when they're little, because otherwise they're, you know, they don't, they don't want all that detail unless they ask you. And generally speaking, if they're asking you, they are ready to hear the answer. I know that's hard for adults. They don't want to sort of ruin the innocence of childhood. But your person having died, you're not, you know, if that's already happened, sort of, if you want to think about it in that way, like things are already different. So being honest allows for clarity. So there's not as much confusion for them. It's interesting that we're talking about the language piece, because in the previous episode that I just put out when I was talking with Daniela McIntosh about culturally relevant grief support, and she made such an important point for me, and it's, it's sort of shifting how I think about even what we do at Dougie Center in that how helpful it is for younger kids to understand what it means that someone has died so that they're not confused or they're not 
searching for them or, you know, just so they have that clarity. And also to ensure that we allow for families and communities and cultures to use the wording that's relevant for them. You know, so whether if so, say in a family or in a particular community, like saying person passed on or transitioned or whatever the wording is, to be able to use that word and make sure a child understands what that means, you know, and then to add that the body stopped working and we have that foundation. And then a family can also add whatever their understanding is of what does it mean when someone dies, maybe from more of that spiritual, religious perspective, whatever the like, what happens next kind of thing. And so breaking that sort of helps me to sort of break that down, specifically when I'm talking to caregivers about supporting kids, that there's so many different layers to what does it mean to tell a child that someone has died, and to make space for all of those things at the same time. Yeah, and I, and I love that idea of just explaining what that word means in your family or community context so that they're not confused. It's like you could say that person died and explain what died means and then say in our family we say the person passed away. Or another way of, you know. But that's a lot of ex- that's a lot of explanation for a 3-year-old to take in. <laughs> You might have to do it and and pace yourself and do a bit at a time. But I think the most, for me, the biggest takeaway in that, well, there's two big takeaways, but one of the big takeaways is recognizing that kids who are this age, right, they don't necessarily cognitively quite grasp that death happens to everybody, that it's permanent, and that it means the cessation of all function of a body, and that it can be really helpful for them to have that concrete understanding to start to have to be able to make more sense of the other less tangible aspects that come with grief and loss too, as they get older. I think another uh, question that all kids, but really um, even the littlest ones that caregivers are really tempted to lie about is, are you going to die? Am I going to die? And, you know, of course, you don't want them to be worrying about that, but you really need to be honest. Um, And that honesty can also be couched in assurances that you're going to do your best to be healthy and be safe so that you will be around for a long, long time. But it is important to be honest and say, well, some, you know, everything that is living eventually dies. I will die someday, yes. And I take care of myself as best I can so that I can be around for a long time so I can see you grow up. And to offer also that, and no matter what happens, there's always going to be somebody to take care of you. Yes, that is an important bit of business that the adults now really hopefully will look at is you know getting your your will in order so that you have plans for who would take care of your beloved child should you also die 
Um, and so that you can share that information with your child, because kids will often ask, what's going to happen to me if you die? So having a plan that you can then share with your child and, and say, well, if something, if that does happen, these are the people that you will live with. And I've already talked to them about it. And it's all written down. So you will be taken care of. Uh, Satkar, having this conversation reminds me of why when I tell people what I do, their reaction is like, oh, that must be so hard. How do you even like get out of bed in the morning? And I'm wondering for <laughs> you, you know, as we come to the end of our conversation, how has working, particularly with this age of kids who are grieving, how has it changed you? Well, I think I'm more direct about grief and death. I mean, I, I said at the very beginning that my family and my family, we didn't talk about it, at, at least my brother's death. I mean, my mom and dad both have since died and my siblings and I talk about them and that's all fine. But we still don't talk about my brother. Um, and And I am really open with my daughter um, and with other kids. Working at Dougie Center has also, I think, in combination with having a child, has made me um, realize that little people are just people. They're like, they we don't have to dumb things down for them. We just need to explain it at an age-appropriate in an age appropriate way, um, but they are very capable of taking in information and even having their own ideas about what death is or where people go when they die or what happens to a body um, and just allowing space for them to share their ideas. I don't have, you know, I don't know what happens when people die. I don't know where they go. So I don't have to, place that information on, on a kiddo, whatever their family believes is fine with me, whatever they've, whatever they think in their own mind, that's fine with me. I don't have to have an answer for them. They come up with a lot of great answers on their own. Um, and that they are, little kids are able to express themselves in their own way if they're given the space to do that. And that, oh my gosh, they love being reflected. <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes all you have to do, you don't have to have uh, a great answer for them. You can just reflect back what they have said to you. And they're happy that you heard them. <laughs> oh, you were listening to me and paying attention. Yeah, which again goes back to that acknowledgement and how comforting yeah. even just the acknowledgement can be. Whether it's because yeah. they're telling you about how their dad died or about what their favorite superhero is. or And the other thing that I think about with that is that for a lot of these kids, if it was a caregiver who died or even if it was a sibling who died, again, their whole system, their whole family system is impacted. And the amount of capacity that the adults in their life may have at this time to pay close attention to them or to give them their full attention is likely diminished understandably. And so for them to be around people who can give them their full attention uh, is really powerful. So 
So thank you for being that person who does that. And our groups are small. So it's not like kindergarten or preschool where, you know, even if the class is small, 15 or 20 kids, there's probably only two adults in there with them, right? Or maybe three. But we try to have a two kid to one adult ratio. So with 15 kids, that's seven adults. You can give them a lot of attention and absolutely their own caregivers are having diminished capacity because they have so much on their own mind, or maybe now they have to go back to work full time. It's great to be able to have a few spaces, hopefully at school and definitely at Dougie Center where people are really able to give full attention, even if it's just for an hour and a half. Well, Satkar, thank you for giving me your attention for this conversation and for the work that you do with all ages of people who are grieving uh, at Dougie Center, um, but particularly for these younger kids. And listeners, I will link in our show notes to the resources that we have. We have a whole toolkit, actually, for supporting kids this age who are grieving. So I'll link to that. Um, And you can always reach out to Satkar or I at Dougie Center for more information. But Sakar, thank you for telling me a little bit more about your personal story with grief, but sharing so many great insights today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Jana. Thanks for having me. And listeners out there, I know you're tired of me saying this, but I thank you each and every single time for being part of our community, for making the show mean something. If you want to email me, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at grief out loud at dougie.org that's d-o-u-g-y it's also .org which is also our website where you can find the toolkit that i mentioned and all of our other free downloadable resources information about programs similar to ours around the world and each and every episode of grief out loud excited as always to share that the podcast is sponsored in part by the chester stefan endowment fund thanks again for listening we hope you'll join us again next time